Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Women Changing the World podcast. I'm seriously so excited to have Teresa Leave here. She's a food systems analyst at GreenBiz. Uh, she knows so much about food, and she's had such an interesting like life story and trajectory. I feel like we have like way too much to talk about. <laughs> so welcome, Teresa, to the podcast. It's so exciting to have you here. Thank you, Liz. I'm so uh, so excited to be here with you. Yay. Um, well, I, I love to start with like the big question, the biggest question first, um, which is one that I know you've done some thinking about before, but because this is the Women Changing the World podcast, um, if you could change one thing about the world, what one thing would you want to change? Um, you know, I would just want people to live in balance with nature more and in my my world, that that is a big thing, you know. That's basically changing the whole world and and how we and how we live in it. But I, um, within that big bucket of things, I really focus on food and agriculture and how how those systems connect to climate and biodiversity and health and um, and communities and trying to find some more some more balance um, through food in in a very complex in a very com- complex world that we're living in totally totally i love that you're actually that's a similar vein as um a couple answers i've gotten so far this season on the podcast and i could not agree more i mean i think it's something that we're so sorely in need of um i also realized i totally got ahead of myself and i meant to let you introduce yourself before asking uh the first big question um so if you wouldn't mind like for people who are listening who don't already know you um would you mind giving us just like who you are in a nutshell and we'll come back to your story in much more detail as we get into it um sure happy to so my name is Teresa. i live in San Francisco with my partner and my dog. And um, I work as a food systems analyst at GreenBiz. Um, GreenBiz is a media and events company focused on mostly on corporate sustainability, but on you know sustainability and climate more broadly as well. So I do um, some writing, some conference con- convening around, around food and agriculture. And that has, been kind of a big topic for me uh, for my whole life, uh, which we'll get to um, later, I think. Um, but yeah, my background is in uh, environmental science, and I've worked on different kind of land use systems in the past, um, in very internationally. I've worked in Ecuador and Brazil and Mexico, and I studied in uh, the Netherlands and the UK, and somehow made my way over here. Um, and <laughs> Yeah, I think that's me in a nutshell, I guess. And I grew up in Germany. Totally. Well, thank you so much for that. I feel like you, yeah, you have such an interesting international background um, and body of work. It's so fascinating um, and definitely want to talk more about all of that. Um, I guess maybe before we get into kind of what brought you to being here today, I would love to hear a little bit more about what your day-to-day looks like right now. I know um, you write consistently, you have a newsletter, um, you write a column, like what does, what does the day-to-day, um, I know you have other things in addition to that on your plate. Um, and I would love to hear more about what it looks like. Yeah, good question. Um, and I guess my day-to-day changes a little bit as well as right now we're in, ex- in an exciting place. Uh, at GreenBiz, we host a lot of um, pretty big conferences. And over the past two years, all of those have been online because of COVID. But we just had our first in-person conference in February. And it looks like we'll be hosting most of our conferences um, in person again this year, which is really fun. And so a lot of my work, um, most of my time actually, is focused on thinking about you know, how to um, convene a meaningful conference, who are the people who should be there and who who needs to be talking to each other more um, to, you know, take down some roadblocks that we have in climate and sustainability. How do we um, design better panels and how do we connect people um, at those events when they come together? So a lot of uh, kind of very nerdy uh, topics that conference organizers think about but then I also um, you know I, I'm a food systems analyst so I'm 
supposed to um, kind of have this uh, big picture overview of everything that's happening within the food and agriculture sector. What are big companies doing? What are startups doing? What are the newest trends? Like, where do we have to, um, what, what can we be excited about? What do we have to examine critically as well? Um, and then, you know, that kind of like big picture analysis also uh, flows into my newsletter slash column that I write every week. Um, and that goes out to about 11,000 subscribers right now. And so I try to, um, yeah, cover cover a lot of optimistic stories because I think that's what we need a lot uh, more of to stay optimistic and stay motivated to do the hard work that people in the space do. But then also try to think about, okay, what are the things that aren't working well and where do we have to um, push a little bit more with our storytelling? Totally. Well, I think that's so interesting. And like, you know, thinking about the global food system, it's like it touches everything. <laughs> um, so it it's, a lot, it's a lot to have your finger on the pulse of. And I would love to hear, I mean, I know like that I've gotten to have a little preview on this, but um, you've had such an interesting story, which you kind of previewed in your intro. Um, so I'd love to hear like how you got to be where you are today. And really the invitation um, is to tell us the whole story. Like, don't feel like you have yeah. to pass over <laughs> anything here. I think this is something that, you know, both I and our listeners are always interested to hear how people kind of get into these, these dream roles. Yeah, totally. And I, I love listening to the stories of the women, other women who came before me in your podcast. And it's, uh, it's very inspiring to hear, you know, like how people came to be passionate about what they are passionate about and the ups and downs and um, backs and forths of, uh, of pathways, which I certainly have, uh, have a bunch as well to talk about. Oh, totally. Well, thank you so much for saying that. Um, and yeah, I feel like the zigs and zags are like what make for a good story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, starting at the beginning, I grew up in a small village called Bartolome, which is in the south of Germany, kind of halfway between Munich and Stuttgart. Uh, both of my grandparents were farmers. Uh, one of my uncles still has a pretty big dairy farm today. And the other, um, the farm of my uh, mom's family got closed down because my mom and her and none of her siblings wanted to take it over. Um, and so it was just um, kind of empty buildings for a while until my mom and my aunt started to open it back up as a restaurant. And so over the past um, 25 years, I think it is now, or 20 years, uh, it kind of like slowly developed from this very small um, impromptu restaurant into a very one of the most sustainable event venues and uh, little hotels in Germany, um, which is cool because it's kind of like a parallel path that my mom and I have been on over the past years. But at the beginning, like. Uh, going back to to where we started, I grew up in this small town in Germany and nothing much really happened there. Um, so when I graduated from high school, um, I really wanted to get out and I always loved studying languages. And um, I had the opportunity to go on a, on a few student exchanges during high school as well to um, in France and Turkey and Australia and really loved traveling. So I applied to this volunteer service in Germany, which is kind of similar to um, the Peace Corps program in the US. And um, I wanted to go to Mexico City because I wanted to go to a big city, like where things are happening, where, where you know, a 19 year old can have some fun while also, <laughs> while also like learning Spanish and of course, uh, saving the world in a little community project, which at the time I was still, uh, quite naive about what one person could accomplish but that was the dream and oh my gosh I, well at 19 weren't we all <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely um yeah but I applied too late and the project in Mexico City was too full but I got offered another project in Ecuador 
in a village that was half the size of my village in Germany. And so I was like, oh no, like this is the opposite of what I wanted, but it was by the beach and it looked uh, really beautiful. And so I was like, okay, I'll, I can, you know, go and live by the beach for a year. That will be fun. And so I went and did that and it was really fun, but it was also um, really transformational in how I got to understand, you know, the inequalities, inequality in the world and how where you grow up really shapes the opportunities that you have in, in life and how poverty and environmental destruction and education are all kind of like intertwined and it could be an upward spiral or a downward spiral depending on if you a community gets lucky or not or you know the different drivers that affect um, a place so yeah it was it was a really meaningful experience and that kind of set me up on my career pathway as well um, so from there I went back to Germany uh, and I enrolled myself in uh, law school, which in Germany, um, university degrees kind of, we don't have the liberal arts and science or general education um, college system. You have, most people do a specialized program from the start. So um, you go straight from high school into law school or biology or whatever you want to study. So I, I decided that I wanted to study law because I thought that um, I could, you know, being a lawyer, you're powerful and you can make the world a better place and uh, help help different communities. But I soon realized that law school was more about studying, you know, all these little um, laws and very, very rabbit hole kind of um, questions and not really so much about the Big justice and ethical questions that I had in my mind after coming back from Ecuador to to my own life um, back home, and so I dropped out after six months and enrolled myself in a different, very different program um, in the Netherlands, which is which was a liberal arts and science college where I studied international development and could really kind of dive a little bit deeper into those issues of inequality and environmental conservation and climate that. I was really personally struggling with at the time and also felt like would be the defining issues of our generation. And that's what where I really wanted to, uh, to work on. And um, yeah, it was a great school, very international, very small. So I had very close um, interaction with professors and got, got really lucky to kind of be in an environment where I had a lot of support because I, I was a first generation student. So my family couldn't really support me much in going to school and, you know, didn't really know how to help me and what the things are that you need to do to be successful. But uh, yeah, so I got lucky to be in this kind of very small community. What was the next step? So after, yeah, in college, I also did an exchange program in Brazil. So I studied in Sao Paulo for uh, six months and then uh, learned Portuguese while I while I was there. Oh my and, gosh! Just uh, casually learned Portuguese. <laughs> <laughs> well, you kind of have to it, when you're in a place that only speaks one language, and you totally. are, you know. And I, I like people, so um, uh, yeah. So that's like you know one tip if you want to learn a language, just go to a place where people speak only that language and stay there for six months and. I promise you, you will learn it. Um, that, <laughs> that I think is the easiest way to do it. Um, yeah, and so that was really fun. Uh, I learned Portuguese and that set, set me up for my first job after college where I went back to Brazil and I did um, two traineeships with the German development kind of institutions. Um, so still focused on, on development at the time. And so I worked six months for the German Development Bank, and then afterwards for the German Development Service, which are similar but uh, but independent institutions. And that work was focused on um, preventing deforestation in the Amazon and supporting um, local communities in the Amazon to um, develop um, kind of eco uh, eco tourism and alternative um, economies based on 
the natural resources there so that they would have more of an economic incentive to protect the Amazon rather than participate in deforestation. And that was really interesting work, but also frustrating because it felt kind of small scale and you work on this project by project base. And then during that time, I also learned a lot about, you know, the drivers of deforestation and environmental degradation in Brazil. And a lot of that stems from agriculture. And so in the end, I felt like, well, if we really want to tackle this issue from the start, from the beginning, from, from the source of it, we need to think about agriculture and, and diets and global consumption. Um, and so that's that was the topic that I decided I wanted to hone in on and wanted to learn more about. And um, I just kind of took a moonshot in what, what seemed at the time like a moonshot and applied to some of the best uh, master's programs focusing on diet and climate change and, and agriculture food systems more broadly. And I really wanted to go to Oxford because there was this one professor called Tara Garnett who had written um, some of the lead pa papers at the time on this topic. But, you know, coming from where I came from, I never thought that I would get into Oxford. And um, and I only applied because one of my college professor, professors had gone there to do his PhD. And he was like, no, Teresa, like you, you can totally, you could totally get accepted. And so I was like, you know, <laughs> I might as well. <laughs> Uh, give it a try but it probably won't work out so I also applied to like 10 other backup schools um, and it worked out um, I still remember being in Brazil like I was out with friends in this little uh, fast food uh, restaurant I think before heading out to a weekend trip and I checked my email on my phone and I saw the acceptance letter and I just couldn't believe it. I was like, what, how, how is this possible? And like, you know, just like was sitting there in this little restaurant and crying. And it was, yeah, it was really um, cool. And yeah, I just never felt like, you know, I would be the kind of person who could be part of that world, which seemed like a different kind of universe to me. Totally, um, totally, yeah. which is so cool because I feel like knowing you now, I'm like, I'm like, oh, of course you got into Oxford, but I can also totally... <laughs> Totally appreciate how in the moment it felt like such a, such a like wild dream. Um, and what was it like to go there, especially as a first generation student? It was really cool. Oxford is a beautiful place. It's a really cool student town. It, it's a relatively small town and the university is kind of dispersed across the whole city. So you have these beautiful buildings everywhere. Like there's so many young people on the streets and all the cafes and libraries it's just a really really cool place and you meet you know you meet people from all around the world um, studying all these really interesting things and crazy things and there's you know a lot of nerds but also just a lot of normal nice people <laughs> so um, and I think that's especially true in the master's programs the master's programs are a lot more international than the undergrad programs which are I think a little bit more of what you imagine from like um, British high society kind of going there and, and studying in their fancy, fancy dorm rooms. But yeah, I had a really good experience and I, I studied, um, my program was at the geography school and we did a lot of field trips. So we had like three or four or even five field trips in one year um, going to all these different conservation areas in the UK. And so that was a really fun uh, a fun way to connect more deeply with some of the professors but also my classmates and uh, in my first year I lived in a big house uh, that was run by my college with uh, 20 or so other students and then in my second year I moved into a co-op uh, with 10 other people who were all doing like different different programs so it was just a really really fun time um, and I think I probably learned more from all those interactions and meeting people then from school itself, <laughs> which I think <laughs> is probably true for most. And and like in terms of school, it was, um, yeah, it couldn't have been more different to my undergrad experience because I went from this 300-person college to this huge, you know, global kind of university where 
with my advisor. I had a really great advisor, but everybody's, all the professors are just so busy with their research and don't really have a lot of time to, you know, read your essays and comment on it and give you personalized feedback and all of that. So it's very much of like, if you want something from someone, you have to go chase them and no one's going to, you know, really, really care about what you do if, <laughs> if you don't make it happen. <laughs> Yeah, so that that was fun. And uh, I guess one big part of it at Oxford, I also uh, met my partner, who um, he also studied abroad in Brazil, and he hosted a little kind of seminar where he invited a speaker from Brazil to talk about rainforest deforestation. And I read about it in like some of the event newsletters and and went to the to the event and that's how we met and you know we're still uh still together like five years later now and that's how and he's from san francisco so that's kind of how i moved um to the bay area after graduating from from oxford oh so cool what a yeah what a like weird uh like geographic synergy (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah um, it is. And, you know, I would have never expected to live in San Francisco at some point. And that's like something that I, you know, you always feel like you want to make your five year plans and have an idea of what life is going to be like. And then you make all these plans and just like <laughs> everything <laughs> ends up being completely different because of something like this. You, you know, fall in love with someone who's from the other side of the world and then you you just pack up and move to a different place so yeah (laughs) totally well I don't think everyone always does that but I absolutely love that that has been your story yeah fair enough (laughs) so you're at Oxford you've met your partner um and then how like how do you get from Oxford to San Francisco what did that look like um yeah that was a challenging time for me well first I had to um you know wait for a long time for my visa to get processed and actually being able to move here but also I didn't really know anyone in the Bay Area and so I think finding uh your first real job after uh, university is already hard but then if you combine that with moving to a different continent it's even harder and you know at the time I was still kind of like okay well you know I have all this experience I had some work experience already I have all this international experience I speak all these languages I went to Oxford I got my degree uh of course everybody wants to hire me but (laughs) that definitely wasn't the case um so I went through a long process of, of application applying to all kinds of things like startups and NGOs and companies um, working on food and agriculture and climate and conservation in the Bay Area. But yeah, I just had a hard time um, finding anything. And uh, then after maybe four or five months um, of applying to stuff, and at the time I I was lucky because I, um, my advisor at Oxford she needed a research assistant at the time so I was working kind of like part-time remotely with her and I had another project that I was consulting on that stemmed from one of my internships in Brazil that I that I did before so I had some income but nothing you know not not a real job um and yeah just came here and didn't really know anyone and I was job searching so it was it was a difficult time but then Eventually, uh, someone believed in me <laughs> and hired me. Um, so my first real job uh, was at WeWork, the which probably most people know, a uh, big kind of like uh, office office locations. And there, I managed the global food program, which a lot of people are surprised about. We were having a food program, but is you know all the coffee and drink service um and catering service and just um people eat food while they work so um that's why <laughs> we were kind of at a food program and in some locations we had kind of little built-in cafes and all of that and it was a really cool job we had an amazing team probably like one of the biggest sustainability teams a company's ever had and we're trying to do um some pretty like innovative things as well and was 
was going well. I loved it. I had I had a great great colleagues, but then um, we were tried to IPO and like that didn't work out and um, the company got into a hard place financially and most of our team got laid off, um, which was really hard. And just like being in that um, work environment where you know that things aren't going well and a lot of people are getting laid off and you're just, you're just anxious that you might lose your job every day. And that really influences how well you can perform at your job and so that was a difficult time but eventually uh my job was kept my role was kept along with um a handful of others because we had more operational roles than some of our colleagues and so I stayed on for for four or five months after the first big round of layoffs layoffs happened but then the company went through you know um restructuring uh, consistent restructuring, consistent leadership change, and uh, we just weren't really able to get anything done anymore. And so um, I decided that I was kind of wasting my time and just quit. <laughs> and uh, I had some consulting projects before I quit. I had some consulting projects lined up, um, and yeah, just wanted to get out of it and be more productive again. And to go back to doing uh, project-based consulting work uh, before finding kind of another role that would make sense for me. Totally. But, oh my gosh, that's so crazy after working so hard and being so patient to find the dream role, to have it yeah. go that way is so heartbreaking. It was. It was because, you know, everything was perfect and then it just disappeared. But totally. yeah, that's that's how life is. And still, you know, I still learned a lot during the time I was there and reaffirmed my, you know, interest in food and, and also corporate sustainability kind of, I think I'm, I'm always a little bit torn about, you know, our companies really the ones uh, shifting, shifting our impact, but that's just like the economic system that we live in right now and companies buy and produce um everything or most things that we have in the world so I think it's a good place to start um if you want to be pragmatic about change totally totally well if I remember correctly we work like did have some pretty did do some pretty innovative things on the food front while you were there in terms of some of their policy shifts yeah yeah we um we were a meat-free company, um, so I think that was something that got a lot of headlines, and uh, we had a lot of um, in, like employee engagement internally, with you know some people not being happy, many people being excited about it, but it just being a great um, venue for education and and conversation about sustainability. We had um, some some pretty cool reuse um so packaging reuse programs for example in our location in london um, all our milk got delivered in reusable glass bottles and we had um, these local systems in place um we shifted our coffee procurement to sustainable coffee during my time there um which was huge because uh, people drink a lot of coffee at work so <laughs> we were was buying a ton of coffee um so yeah you know like things were happening and that was the exciting thing to be at a company like that that already had scale but still pretty flat hierarchies so you know some I was the person in charge of food and I actually could make some of these decisions relating to food um, relatively quickly and and change things around and also because the um, founders of WeWork really were down for making the company more sustainable and really took the impact that they had on the world as seriously as they could. Totally, totally. Well, so, okay, so you did some really cool stuff while you were there. You eventually decided it was time to leave. You had some consulting projects lined up. How did you get from going back to project-based consulting to where you are today? Yeah, so I was doing uh, consulting projects again after we work and that was also when COVID started um so you know everybody went into home offices for COVID and I did 
I did my project and that was fun. I still, you know, I still look back on being a consultant in like very positively because I'm someone who is like very curious and I loved working on different kinds of projects, but it has uh, other downsides, obviously. Um, but my primary kind of motivation for wanting to go back to um, a team environment was one feeling too isolated, especially during COVID because I, you know, I worked independently and then I was just at home and wasn't interacting with a lot of people on my day-to-day, in my day-to-day life. So I wanted to change that. And then um, I also kind of reflected on the time that I had spent at WeWork in a team environment and then the time I had spent as an independent consultant and, and realized that I just um, learned a lot more and developed a lot more skills being in a team environment because you learn a lot more from others. And so being still relatively early in my career, I felt like it would be more beneficial to go back to working with a team and just like learn from others and be in a more interactive environment. So that's the first um, answer to that question. And the second answer is that um, Greenbiz was actually one of my uh, cli- consulting clients. I had a small project with them oh, to cool. work on one of <laughs> to work on one of the conferences, and I got to know the team through that. And yeah, and just felt like they were doing cool work. And I also had learned like over the different kind of roles and projects that I had um, in the years before that the team it has so much influence on your experience and your ability to perform that in the decision that I was making at that time, I really wanted to make sure that I was working with a good team and that I had a supportive manager. And that was at the time, I guess, maybe even a little bit more important to me than the role itself. Um, and so I guess that's something that I, you know, learned over time that at the beginning I was entirely looking for um, the role and like what would my day-to-day activities be, what are my responsibilities, what is the change that I can make through the work and not so much at the culture and the team environment and things like that. But I realized that, you know, that is actually a really important piece of the of the puzzle of um yeah, being happy and productive at work. Totally. I think so often, especially in the impact space, we do like really focus on the impact and the work, but having worked with so many, you know, women in these careers, I'm like increasingly of the opinion that like you can do almost anything if you really like the people that you're doing it with and for, and you like generally feel like it's making a positive impact. Yeah, for sure. And also um, like all of my leadership uh, role models in my life and the positive ones until now have been women (laughs) <laughs> and I had I was I have like two bad um, kind of relation like work relationships uh, in the past and both of those were with men and you know so I was like I'm not gonna work <laughs> I, I never want to have a male manager again and of course now at Greenviz I report to um, my manager is a man uh, Jim but he's actually amazing so um, I can confirm that there are exceptions. <laughs> Oh, totally, but, uh, totally. But I, that, there's some yeah. great men leading there's teams. Some great, <laughs> there's, there's some great men leading teams, but definitely at some point I was like, I'm never going to report to a man again. Like, <laughs> I'm done with them, and I want to have just female leaders, um, which uh, I still want to see more of, but um, I Jim is restoring my confidence a little bit. Oh, I love that. It's so, I feel like it's so interesting when we, like, have these ideas like you were so clear on prioritizing like I want to prioritize the leader I want to prioritize the team and the culture and then you're like confronted with like the opportunity has something about it that seems like the opposite of what you wanted it sounds like it actually is all the things that you wanted but you had to like rewrite that that script a little bit in the process yeah yeah for sure um well that's so interesting thank you so much for sharing kind of how you came to be where you are today. And I feel like given the work that you do, which is again, so interesting, uh, there's so much I could ask you about. Um, 
I guess the first thing I'm kind of curious about, you know, knowing, um, first of all, I, ha- I heard great things about GreenBiz. Uh, we're talking in March, so it was last month. I know this episode will come out a little bit later. Um, but I'm curious, like, what's your take on, like, why conferences matter in 2022? I think it's been really interesting to have gone through almost two years without conferences and now be thinking about, like, what does the future of gathering professionally look like? Yeah, that's a great question. And, like, something that I have been thinking about a lot as I started this role and I and as I was reflecting also on what is um, – so the challenging part of the job that I have and that um, my colleagues are doing at GreenBiz as well is that when you work in media and events, it's really hard to measure your impact. You know, like what have you, you can't say, oh, I've changed um, the procurement of like coffee for half a million people. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you don't really have those very um, quantitative statistics. It's more like you bring people together and connect them and then new partnerships form and people get motivated again to do their work. And so it's a little bit more fuzzy. Um, but going to my first in-person Greenmas conference after COVID in February was really transformative. I think the most important piece of it for me right now is that is to give people that sense of community um, within the sustainability and impact space where people know, okay, like I'm not alone in doing this work. I'm not the only one who hasn't figured it out. Um, there is like a whole tribe that I belong to and all these people want to, you know, really change the emissions of their companies and turn around their supply chains and think about um, how workers are treated and human rights and all these issues. And I think the work that people in this space do can be really hard and emotionally draining. And you're like confronted with this huge existential crisis every day at work. And it's really hard to stay, you know, stay motivated and feel like you're in control of like this little tiny piece that you're working on. And also, take care of your mental health and all of that. And I I think that gathering with people and just exchanging and and getting support is a really important piece of making this work um, personally sustainable for the people in it for the long term. Totally. No, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I do think it's like so often people doing this work, you're a small team or a team of one, And it feels like you're trying to turn like a massive ship. And so spending time, making the time, even when you have a ton on your plate, to spend time with other people who are trying to turn their respective ships, I think can be so helpful in feeling like you're not alone in trying to do this work. Yeah, it's so crazy to me to see how small sustainability teams still are. You know, it's like some of the, I've talked to someone who's leading all the supply chain work for like one of the biggest food companies in the world. And they're like a three person team. (laughs) They're supposed, they're supposed to cut emissions by 50% in the last, in the next five years. And so I'm like, how on earth is that going to happen? And of course, you know, they work with a lot of consultants and service providers and um, in partnerships with other companies and, and all of that, but it's still like very monumental piece of work um and yeah and then I think that's where the second part of conferences comes in you know it's um in terms of the content it's just um a convening of the important topics of the important um you know new frameworks that are developing new um, technologies as well um risks and benefits of those so I think it's just like an easy way to um kind of get an overview of the space and like where you are in in comparison to other other companies and what what are the things that you can implement into your day-to-day work that will make you more effective in your job totally totally and to get a sense of like yeah what are the like coolest newest things that are happening so you have something to like have on your like next next to-do list (laughs) definitely um, well, and I'm curious, I know Greenbiz has done some interesting stuff on like their food policy for 
conferences. Um, and I'm curious too, like what your take is on like why and how other organizations need to change their food policies. Um, but maybe if you don't mind sharing like some of the green biz updates first, and then would love to hear your philosophy around that. Um, yeah. So I have been a long-term advocate of um, changing diets to more plant-based uh, plant-rich kind of options, because um, if you look at emissions within the food system, the bulk of the emissions really comes from the production of meat and dairy and other um, animal products. And also environmental degradation is really closely linked to that. So that by that, I mean deforestation and the conversion of grasslands in the U.S. and in other places. So there's a lot of um, negative environmental and also um, social outcomes, pollution, local pollution from from factory farming and, you know, industrial animal agriculture. And I'm not saying that all kind of animal agriculture is bad. There are a lot of farms and ranchers who are um, really doing amazing work. But um, if we look at the big picture production, a lot of that is really um, destructive. And people, especially in the U.S., are also over-consuming those products. So it's detrimental for their personal health as well. Um, and so, you know, advocating for rethinking our diets, like reducing um, the high meat and dairy consumption, replacing it with more fruits and vegetables and nuts and grains and just like whole, more plant-based whole foods, um, I think is really important. And all the big climate models and climate assessments, even like from the IPCC, have shown that without doing that, without changing the way we eat globally, we won't be able to limit global, global warming to 1.5 degrees. So it's like an essential thing to do. And But people have a really hard time changing their diets. It's, um, it's very personal. Um, it's very habitual. It's really hard to change those behaviors and also your preferences and taste and all of that. Um, and so like within that, institutional procurement has a really important role to play in exposing people to different foods and dishes that they wouldn't necessarily cook for themselves at home and just, you know, um, providing examples for other healthy and tasty foods that are at the same time um, a lot more sustainable. And that's why we changed our policies at GreenBiz. And we did that for the first time for our conference in February. So we served 75% um, vegan meals and 25% vegetarian meals. Uh, yeah, and that was an interesting experiment. And there's other like institutional procurement initiatives going on in the US. So for example, in New York, um, they're going to do one plant-based day in schools, I oh, think. Oh, cool. Um, starting, I don't know exactly when it starts, but that ha that's an initiative that has just been announced. And then there's like Meatless Mondays that has been around for a while. So, you know, different campaigns um, in this space trying to um, impact institutional procurement because that's also where you know food gets bought in these big volumes and if one of these like big government institution changes their policies it actually um, makes a big impact on the supply chain overall totally totally thank you so much for sharing that and that is really interesting to think about like just the fact that it's exposing people to different choices that they wouldn't have made for themselves I don't know if I would have thought about it in those terms but that makes so much sense yeah. Yeah, and it's hard to get it right. You know, I think the it's really challenging. Um, there, you know, there's really amazing vegan and vegetarian food out there, but only if you know how to cook <laughs> it. And and the sad thing is that you know, like traditional uh, training, like chefs training and chefs education, doesn't really incorporate that a whole lot. You know, like the traditional training that you get if you go to culinary school is all about meat and dairy and kind of like the traditional French cuisine. Um, and so there's really like this big skill gap within the food service um, environment that uh, we have to address if we want to get people more excited about sustainable food. And so the, our venue, for example, at, at our conference, they did it relatively well, but, you know, not perfectly. And so it's something that we also kind of decided that we are going to invest in and, and give those um culinary teams a chance to learn and experiment as well 
um, at the conference. And so, yeah, over time, as more and more people request that and, and there's more demand for it, hopefully the quality of it and the excitement of the food will also improve. Totally, totally. That Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, and I feel like uh, there's, again, there's so much I want to ask you about, but, um, you know, I would love to change gears a little bit. You've, you've yeah. lived abroad in so many places <laughs> for, for shorter stints than obviously for longer since like now. Um, I'm, I know you're also a big believer that everyone should live abroad at least once in their life. Um, and I'm curious, like one, why do you think everyone should live abroad at least once in their life? And two, what tips do you have for meeting new people and making friends in a new city as an adult? Cause I know that's not an easy thing to do. Good question. The second one, especially like during these times where people are, you know, still in their little bubbles a little bit, but I'll start with the first one, you know, I think, um, Living abroad just opens up your horizon, you know, you get to know different people, different cultures, different food, you get to travel, you meet people that have very different experiences and worldviews to your own. And I think it's just really important in terms of understanding how the world works, but also understanding where you came from and like what shaped how you view the world and your own privilege, maybe. Um, and yeah and just like getting out of your comfort zone going to a place where you don't know anyone and you have to make friends um it's hard but it's also liberating because you know all these new people don't have any expectations for how you're supposed to be or who you're supposed to be or how you're supposed to behave like you can kind of go to a new place and reinvent yourself every time if you want to so that's also really fun um and I think the la the the other piece that has been really meaningful to me in getting to know different places and cultures and how how people do things and how cities are organized and and policies and politics in different countries is you know that oftentimes when we say or think something's impossible it's not really because other people in what in some other place in the world are doing it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, just getting that inspiration and like knowing that things are possible and that there are different ways of doing something um, while still living a good life is like, you know, totally doable. And I think is especially important in the sustainability and impact world where we are looking, we are trying to come up with these better solutions. And a lot of those solutions already exist in a place. We just need to kind of like find them and then understand why are they working there and how can we take that and adapt it to a different environment. Totally, totally. Yeah, that makes that makes so much sense. And I, I think it is so expansive. And I also am going to circle back and uh reinforce it's also just the really question. really fun yeah right? the question I'm making, I mean that yeah too. yeah totally I mean I think it could be such a fun adventure but then how do you make new friends as an adult in a new place <laughs> um yeah I'm still kind of trying to figure that out so um in all my other like places that I've moved to in the past it's always been for an internship or a program or um at an or a job or something very specific where like when you arrive you're um, already part of a community and that has been harder um this time around when I moved to San Francisco because I didn't really like come here with anything set up um and my partner he grew up here so he has like a network that I was able to tap into but for me it's also just always been important to have like my own group of friends that I can hang out with just to it's something that I need to feel kind of complete um and yeah and and I don't I'm not someone who plays a lot like group sports I I'm not, not talented at all with that and I think that would be a great way to make friends and, and connect with people so finding other like just being open to things that seem kind of weird to do at the beginning so for example I went to like these different meetup groups or I did friend dating on Bumble. Uh, <laughs> I love and, that. I've heard rave reviews yeah. of Bumble, Bumble friend <laughs> or Bumble yeah, BFF, I think it's called, right? Yes, that's, that's what it's called. And it's really fun. And I actually made like three really good friends um, through that. 
yeah and then like I also made friends through work but I guess like during COVID work that has become a lot more difficult um but yeah I think you just have to be like more outgoing and persistent than than you would otherwise be and I think in the Bay Area specifically it's also it seems harder because people are so busy and a lot of people are always like doing trips on the weekend and are not actually around that much and so if you only see someone like once a month um, it's just hard to develop a relationship but yeah I think with a lot of patience and persistence <laughs> you can, you can you can meet people and um, just like trying trying different kind of uh, methods to to connect Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, I'm in a, in the interest of time, I have one more kind of deep question for you and then a couple kind of brief ones. Um, okay. I, oh, I'm so torn, uh, cause I have a couple in mind, but I know that like you of all the people in my world, I mean, I think a lot of people in my world also subscribe to this belief that like, we are not our work. Um, I also know this mm-hmm. belief is like really hard <laughs> when you work in our space. Um, and so I'm curious, like, how do you balance career goals and your life? Um, and how do you find joy outside of your job? Um, I think, yeah, that is a really important one. And as I've talked about a little bit before, it's just really important to have balance if you want to keep up, like, really good work over a long period of time. And, like, one thing for me is I feel very lucky to have grown up in a place where taking long vacations uh, and like taking a lot of time off is just like the standard thing to do. Um, so Germany has a very different work culture than the US and just having in Europe in general, I think people have a better work-life balance just culturally than, than here. And also in Latin America too, people are much more focused on like their sports and family and social life and not so much career oriented. So you know, having that exposure helps me balance um, a little bit better how I spend my own time. But obviously, you're always influenced by the people who are in your immediate environment. So that has become a bit harder in the US and also during COVID, like when not so much, not so many exciting things are happening anyways, you feel like, oh, you might as well keep working because what else could you be doing? Um, But yeah, like one thing... I have a dog and so he needs to go out every day. Uh, And so at least, you know, I start my morning by going on a long walk with him and I make my coffee and grab him and then like first go outside, which I think already sets me up for um, a much better start into the day than going straight to my laptop. And then, yeah, in the evening, same thing. I try to um, stop working by five and, go get some exercise or meet up with someone, uh, read, read a book, watch a movie. And then on the weekends, I have a very strict no weekend work kind of policy and culture. And so I, I almost never do any work on weekends and just like try to completely disconnect. And, and that really helps me to um, re-energize. And I love cooking too. Food is really important to me. And so I can't just like eat crappy food every day. So that means that I have to spend time cooking. I love it. And are you are fully yeah. vegan, correct? Um, mostly. Not not a hundred percent, but um at home I'm fully vegan and then I make exceptions um for kind of like cultural experiences and sometimes when I hang out with groups and um are more flexible then, but so I'm trying to keep yeah the impact as low as possible but I'm not completely strict with it oh cool that seems like such a balanced approach um especially like yeah just thinking about like when you're at home and you have obviously the most control over what goes on your plate prioritizing that but being open yeah yeah and I tried to at the beginning be completely vegan but it's yeah it's just been hard because um food isn't just you know, functional. It has a lot of emotional and cultural components to it, which I think we have to take into consideration as well. So for example, like the first year when I decided to be vegan and then I went home for Christmas to visit my family and I basically like 
couldn't eat anything and my grandma like made all these cookies and things and she was really upset that I wouldn't eat any of them and didn't really like get the whole vegan thing um so I think it's you know trying again like trying to find balance between the impact and on on the environment on the one hand and then people in your life on the other hand and yeah finding a, a middle ground somewhere is important yes absolutely um well, I'm curious if you are going to give some advice to your younger self, um, what advice would you want to give to your younger self? And you can like pick a specific age or just give like general younger self advice. I think advice that I would get give to my like a little desperate uh, me after graduating from school and looking for a job is like, you'll find something great eventually. And it might not be what you think it is, but just, you know, <laughs> have some faith. Uh, I think I, I would say, and to my younger self, I think actually I've done a pretty good job at just kind of enjoying life and getting to know a lot of different places. Um, so I wouldn't really recommend my younger self to do things differently. Mm. I love that. And I, I can't tell you, I feel like so many millennial-ish women, uh, especially like finishing school at the times that we finished school, like just telling our younger selves, like, hold the vision, like have faith. It will be okay. <laughs> yeah. So definitely. real. <laughs> it's, it's, and it's easy to say now it's hard to, you know, keep, keep motivated when you're in it and when you just uh, get rejection email after rejection. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, but, the but struggle it's, is real. <laughs> It is possible. And also, I think that right now, I'm, I hope that for, for graduates right now, it becomes easier because there's, there's like a lot more jobs in this space now, which is really exciting. Um, so hopefully people will have less hard of a time these days. Mm-hmm. I definitely hope so. Um, last question. I ask everyone this um, because so, I know so many women in my world, uh, myself very much included, uh, have inspirational post-it notes all over our computers, desks, walls, mirrors <laughs> um, of just little <laughs> reminders and notes to self. And so I'm curious, like if you, if you got to like give everyone listening um, a message or a phrase for an inspirational post-it note, what would you most want to put on yours? Um, yeah, I'm not much of a post-it person and inspirational person. I think my... <laughs> my mom had tons of inspirational quotes uh everywhere and I think maybe because of that I kind of doled out from them a little bit and my, <laughs> and my partner actually always makes fun of like when we go home to visit my family like of all these signs and like things everywhere and, and a lot of them are in English and he's like that's so funny that you know people in Germany have all these like English inspirational quotes like what's up with that um but yeah just a side note to that but I know that you asked this question. So one quote um, that I have kept on my notebook for a while and that I still like is from Avondati Roy. It's not, I didn't make it up myself, um, but it reads, a new world is not only possible. She is on her way on a quiet day. I can hear her breathing. And that's something that's, um, you know, meaningful to me in terms of trying to listen carefully and trying to stay optimistic and be be patient and faithful but also kind of lean into that female power and healing a little bit Mm, I love that you gave me chills when you read it so thank you so much for sharing and indulging um even if it's not your thing per se um (laughs) well I I of course (laughs) Um, well, and I absolutely love your newsletter. I like love the content that you're putting out. I feel like you're really shining a spotlight on so many areas for like hope and optimism and opportunities to take action in the food space. Um, so I'm curious if anyone's listening and wants more info or a place to connect with you, um, where's the best place for them to find you? Um, thank you. Yeah. So people can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn, just like um, search for my name and it'll come up. And then also um, when you go on greenbiz.com and then look up my name there, I have like an author page where all my articles are listed so people can read all the stuff 
that I've written in the past. And then obviously I have my weekly newsletter that comes out every Thursday that um, is open for everyone to subscribe to. And that, that can also be, be found on the Green Biz website. Um, so yeah, subscribers welcome. <laughs> I love it. Well, and I'll be sure to include links to those in the show notes too, for anyone who's Thank listening. Thank you. Awesome. Well, oh my gosh, Teresa, I could have talked to you for hours. Uh, and I feel like much more to come because I feel like I could have talked to you for hours, <laughs> but thank you so much for making time to hop on the Women Changing the World podcast. It's been so fun uh, to hear your story and go deep with you on all things food and international relocation and everything in between. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for having me and for um, you know hosting this podcast. As I've told you before, I think it's such a great kind of spark of joy and optimism to have in my Spotify that on on some of the dark days where I don't want to listen to any news or any like deep analysis of politics and stuff and just want to get some inspiration it's such a good um podcast to tune into so thank you for for bringing it to life oh my gosh thank you so much I so appreciate it